Thanks. Welcome to Swerve South. Hey, y'all. Welcome to another edition of Swerve South. I'm Jamie Harker. I'm the director of the Sarah Eisman Center for Women and Gender Studies, and I'm here with my friend Julie Enzer. Julie, welcome to Swerve South. Thank you, Jamie. I'm really happy to be here. I am so pleased to get to dish and talk with you today. There's so much to say about Julie. I won't take all of your introduction away from you, but briefly to say, uh, Julie Enzer is a graduate of uh, the PhD program in Gender Studies at the University of Maryland, uh, is the publisher of Sinister Wisdom, is a published poet as well as a scholar, and as we'd like to brag about, most recently is our brand new instructional assistant professor of gender studies at the University of Mississippi. So we could not be more happy to have you teaching with us and talking with us today. Thank you. I'm thrilled. I'm having a great time teaching this semester too. I'm so glad. Well, let's start with a little background. I think a lot of folks know who you are, but in case they don't, could you just talk a little bit about where you grew up, how you got interested in writing and feminism and gender studies, uh, and kind of bring us up to, to how you came to us? You don't have to do the whole story, but as much as you can. Sure. So um, I grew up in kind of a mid-sized city in Michigan, uh, Saginaw, Michigan, which like most of Michigan during the 1970s was heavily reliant on the auto industry. Um, and um, so Saginaw Steering Gear was the uh, was the the big employer in my town. One of the things I like to brag about is I grew up on the same street as Holly Hughes. Um, now Holly Hughes, for people who might not know, maybe who weren't tuned in to the NEA controversies of the late '80s and the early '90s, is a lesbian feminist performance artist. And Holly grew up. She's a little bit older than I am, um, and she grew up. We grew up on the same street together, and. And um, so I always like to think that there's something in the lesbian water of Handley Street in Saginaw, Michigan, that produced me and Holly. Um, and then uh, I went to the State University, the University of Michigan. And part of the reason I, w I wanted to go there is the University of Michigan had one of the first gay and lesbian offices. Though so it wasn't really an office, but they had a gay male advocate and a lesbian advocate. Um, and I saw this somehow in promotional material when I was 16 or 17 years old. And I thought to myself, I'm going to the state university and I'm going to find my people. Um, and I did just that. Um, so I majored in women's studies and English at the University of Michigan and then graduated and wanted to be a part of the movement. Um, and so first I worked in a couple feminist organizations and then I eventually ran the Gay and Lesbian Community Center, as we called it then, Gay and Lesbian. Um, now I think it's an LGBT center um, in the metropolitan Detroit area and did that for a while and then had some other adventures and then went to graduate school with this kind of persistent question of how, uh, how did lesbian feminist books from the 1970s and the 1980s, books that I just like cherished, how did they get out into the world? Um, and one of my first experiences of it was at the Harlan Hatcher Graduate Library in at the University of Michigan, where I saw the two editions of uh, Rita Mae Brown's 
Ruby Fruit Jungle, right? And so the one we read in my Intro to Women's Studies class was the Small Bantam edition. Jamie, you probably have it on your rack of pulp. So in the small mass market size, um, and that's how I was familiar with the story, and that's how I thought it existed entirely in the world. But at the library, I found this other larger, about five by seven edition uh, that came from Daughters Publishing Inc. And I was so fascinated by this, at that time, relatively old copy. It was about um, 18 or 19 years old, about as old as I was. And I wanted to know the story of why there were these two editions. Um, and eventually it was that question opening up into hundreds of other questions that led me back to graduate school. I love that it's Rita Mae Brown that brought you to this, which is like, I can't think of how many lesbians had their journey begin with Rita Mae Brown in some way or another. You know, she was one of the charismatic, exciting lesbians from the 1970s. And she still packs a punch. You know, I think I told you this. I went to the Golden Crown Literary Society. I think it was 2016. And she was supposed to appear and the entire ballroom was packed with lesbians waiting for her. And she somehow got delayed. So we ended up sitting there for two hours and nobody left because she might be coming in at any moment. So it was one of those really interesting things. She eventually showed up to do book signings. And I actually, I'm very proud of this. I own, of course, both editions, but I had the Daughters Inc. edition. I got her to sign for me. So I'm feeling like I am set with that. You are. I know. There's a, that's It's a whole retirement plan right there in that single book. That's it. It's my pulp rock. Don't tell anyone, yeah. but that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So I love this because, you know, we first met when I was just beginning to work on kind of feminist print culture. And you submitted an essay. I can't, did you write it with Agatha or do a separate one? I can't remember which. We did so we did separate ones, but we were both in that volume. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I was working on the Lesbian South, but you were doing this whole great study. Had I think I'd already completed your dissertation by that time on uh, lesbian feminist publishers, which I use extensively. I think you know and quoted from, and think it's amazing, and can't wait for the book to come out. Um, so. I just want to kind of frame this and have you talk more about it. We're thinking about this episode as part of Women's History Month. And one of the things that's so interesting about what we call second wave feminism sometimes or women's liberation was how central print was to that movement and how interesting the story is of this entirely autonomous print distribution system that was set up. And you are really one of the foremost experts on this. Could you just talk a little bit to listeners who don't know about this about the feminist print movement, the women in print movement, and then some of your specific research on lesbian feminist publishing. You know, in the in the early nineteen in the late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies, um, as more and more women were coming out, they were looking for their stories. And of course, Barbara Greer, um, in some ways the mother of us all, was doing her lesbiana column. Uh, that was part of the latter, one of the one of the earlier lesbian publications that started in the mid nineteen fifties, and the and and writing about books that were um, about lesbians that included lesbian themes. I mean, one of the things about, wonderful things about Greer, of course, is she's incredibly eclectic in her taste. She'll read everything, and if there's a if there's a lesbian character or a lesbian inference, or a lesbian look between two women in the book, she was happy to include it and classify it that way. Uh, And so women were reading her columns and looking for more stories that included lesbians. And 
Um, of course, Barbara was one of the early pioneers also in publishing, but it was a little bit in the air. And part of it was technology transformations that were coming that was making um, that was making printing more accessible to a wide range of people through mimeograph machines and then through Xerox machines and other types of printing technology that were coming on board that were um, democratizing print in new ways, really starting in the 1950s and extending, uh, extending through today where we have lots and lots of different and new publishing technologies available to us. Um, but feminists looked at all of this and said, we could take control and we could put our own stories out there. And they, they started, they did a huge array of different types of publishing projects. Some, of course, um, like Park, Bowman and June Arnold, who published Rita Mae Brown's novel, really wanted to take on the random houses, the sort of mailstream presses of New York and replace them with their own feminist visions. So, so Park and June had this big um, revolutionary idea about what their publishing would do. Other people were more interested in curating smaller um, smaller print runs, specialty editions for more coterie readerships. And then of course, everything in between. Um, and, and lesbians and feminists were incredibly energized. They wanted to put everything, everything out there into the world. So they published books, they published journals, they published magazines, they published broadsides, sort of anything in the print world. Um, they wanted to engage with. And there's so many incredible things published that would have been, if not for the work of les lesbian feminists, overlooked by, by broader publishers. So my interest is, you know, one, just in the broad array of material that's out there, but also in how it tied to women's really uh, revolutionary views of the world. Um, there's the sort of Park and June view of we're going to overturn mainstream publishing, but there's there's also another strand that really interests me of women who said, look, printing and publishing is a way um, to uh, is a, is a way for women to have good jobs, jobs that pay well, and uh, for economic empowerment for feminist projects. Like we can build our own worlds and make things and sell things and be economically autonomous and viable. Um, and so that's, so a lot of the presses that uh, are subject to my book, that's, that's one of the things that knits them together. They really saw this as a way, um, as a form of economic empowerment and as a way for them as independent women to make money and support themselves without going to um, as some of them would say in the 70s, work for the man, um, you know, as others would say, put on corporate drag. Um, and so so that's so the publishers had both they fulfilled both this vision of putting lesbian stories out into the world, but also a vision of supporting lesbian writers and lesbians in getting those stories out into the world. Um, and so those tend so those tend to be some of the publishers that I look at ones that operated for um, 
um, more of a period of time, not just publishing one or two books, but also publishers that uh, had as a part of it, they wanted to support the principals who initiated the the publishing work. So publishing was not a hobby for them or a side or a side project, though there's lots of people who did that, who published amazing things, but really tied to this kind of economic vision of how do we create more jobs for women and how do we how do we bring those into the world in a meaningful way? So, you know, I look at Park and June. Um, I love looking at how Nyad Press uh, really developed um, from Barbara Greer and her partner just starting to publish a couple books with friends of theirs who initiated the press into really uh, publishing books that um, brought, they were some of the first people who uh, really thought intensively about racial ethnic diversity um, in lesbian feminist publishing, and then also about how the publishing was going to support um, support Barbara as an activist and as a thinker. And, um, and it did that. Um, it did that, of course, through romance and mystery novels. Um, and then there's, of course, the great spoofing of um, Nyad Press in the novel where there are all of these uh, lesbian writers in little huts sort of turning out these romances that other lesbians then can read. Um, and I think that inspiration still exists in the uh, lesbian feminist publishing that's happening today and some of the romance imprints that we have. Um, so there's lots of great uh, stories. And, you know, um, if I were older, I would say my biggest regret is that I don't have time to tell them all. Um, because one of the, as, as you know, um, one of the issues of Sinister Wisdom that just published is a tribute to the journal Conditions, um, which was another of these lesbian feminist uh, projects. It was an annual journal that published from 1976 until 1990. Um, and 17 issues over the period of those years. And um, we just did a tribute issue and people, people are loving it, right? Like it's really been an opportunity to bring together both writers who were involved with the journal, um, younger readers who read the journal and wanted to be a part of the journal, um, and then a younger group of writers who were born after the journal ceased to publish. Um, so it's been one of these kind of intergenerational projects and also a project to really um, think about intensively and remember what um, what the journal was about. And so that's been, you know, that's been a great um, that's been a great storytelling project for me that I've now been working on for almost 15 years. There's so much to dig in, and I probably can't get to all of it. But I, one of two things: one is that I love like the, the methods that you used in your dissertation, which I assume is feeding into the book, which is to do interviews and to kind of talk to people. And I'm thinking about all the response you're getting, and there's so many stories. I mean, to try to capture that before we lose that generation, right, is is so crucial because you can work on this. You've been working on this for for you know decades now, and you're probably still hearing things you never heard before, right? new kinds of information. I haven't worked out quite that long, but I'm constantly amazed by all the things I hear about that I like, I've really been looking, I've never heard of that. That's awesome. And like sort of finding those things. So that work is just amazing. This is a good piece of gossip um, that I just, that I just figured out. So I've been working with Cheryl Clark on condition stuff for about 15 years now. 
And we're at the launch of the issue and Dorothy Allison is there, which is just so exciting for everyone. And Dorothy's talking about going to the first meeting of the new conditions editorial collective when the founding four recruited other people to pass on the journal. And she, they're meeting at her apartment in Brooklyn and she's, she's all nervous and everything. And she's talking about this and um, she says, and then, you know, Jewel Gomez walked in and then Cheryl Clark walked in. And while Dorothy was telling me that, telling the whole Sinister Wisdom community this, I realized she is narrating the first time that Cheryl and Jewel met each other. And then they became lovers um, in the 1980s. And there's that incredibly iconic, wonderful photograph by Robert Giard of the two of them. And, um, and I never like pieced this together. So I called Cheryl right after, right after we got off this reading and I'm like, that was the first time you met Jewel. And she was like, yeah. And I said, and then you guys became lovers. And she said, yeah, but you know, it was a couple years later. And I said, but there must've been so much sexual tension. And Cheryl was like, yeah, yeah, I suppose there probably was. Um, so it was, but it was just like so exciting to sort of think about, the meeting of these folks in 1981 before any of them had published any of their work and the sort of um, sexual tension, the chemistry, the excitement um, that they all brought to that Brooklyn apartment. Um, and that really uh, nurtured them and inspired them to do the work that eventually they became more known for doing. Um, I just want to say thank you. Uh, Julie and I are both mutually committed to the art of literary gossip. We feel it's important and structural and we enjoy this. Uh, and I actually like the way it connects to these other narratives in, in kind of visceral ways that so much of it, the divisions we want to make between like who's dating whom and who's publishing what and this, they're all mixed in at that moment. And we usually encounter these folks in nice, you know, mainstream editions and anthologies. But when you go back to those archival moments and they have those interviews is when you see how exciting it was, how enmeshed it was, how you couldn't divide the cruising from the like aha intellectual moments from the constructions of these, they were all of a piece and it's really fun to reimmerse yourself in that moment and, and recognize that we think about these as if they are these antiseptic ideas, but they were not. They were passionate love affairs of the mind, of the body, of communities that, that are just amazing to reimmerse yourself in. Yeah. And people in the moment have no idea what the future is going to hold. You know, and I think that's one of the things that younger writers, and I thought it myself when I was young too, that, you know, you think you, you think you like understand who's going to be big, who's going to break out, like what's going to happen. But when you're in the moment of it all, you, you don't know, right? You just know that you're a group of people coming together. You have both um, chemistry and excitement among you. You have some rivalries. You have some people who you love, some people who you're you love a little less some people who you don't want to be close to. Um, and you all have some ideas of what kind of work you're going to do, but you, but it's not realized yet. And in that is all of this possibility. Um, and this is of course why I love the archives, right? Because the archives sort of capture not that, that outcome, right? But all of the possibility that is packed into these early encounters.
What else I love as we're talking is, of course, that we are both archive hounds and love all that work, but you are also continuing that legacy. I mean, we talk about the Women Improvement Movement ending, but you are still editing the journal that was founded in Charlotte in 1976. You have people from those iconic journals on your board, and you're creating these intergenerational spaces. So could you just talk a little bit about your experience both as an editor of Sinisterism and as a writer, and the ways that you're continuing to participate in this feminist print culture movement? Yeah. I, I mean, one of the great things when I start, I started editing Sinister Wisdom in 2010 and for the first four years or so, everyone just kept saying, oh, Sinister Wisdom, I used to love that in the 80s. And I was like, well, yeah, we're still publishing today. And um, and people were sort of shocked, like you're st- like the, the journal is still continuing. Um, and it was at a time when I think people questioned and wondered about the relevancy of um, lesbian as a sign under which we might organize, of a print journal, which people were seeing as an anachronism and saying, but isn't everything going to just happen online now and in the future? Um, And so there were all of these different things happening that um, I think made people skeptical about what Sinister Wisdom Uh, could be in the present and moving into the future. Um, And then a lot of things changed, right, in in a variety of different ways. And now people, um, um, so a variety of things changed externally in the world. And also Sinister Wisdom, I think, really sort of found a way to speak to the contemporary moment. Um, both with what we're publishing, with these intergenerational collaborations, with bringing things back into print, um, and the and the commitment that ideas are cyclical, um, and I think I knew that when I started working on the journal. Um, but the longer you live, the more you kind of see the cyclicalness, and you can kind of think if I just stick to it, a time is going to come when people are going to need these ideas, need these books in in different kinds of ways. And all I have to do is keep doing it and be open to responding when that moment comes. Um, and so the nice thing for Sinister Wisdom is we've now seen a couple of those moments and had the community around us and the nimbleness to really respond to them. Um, so of course, one defining thing in the United States was um, after the, um, I started editing the journal during the administration of President Barack Obama, and you know I think that that and and the the advent of gay and lesbian marriage and all these things, and I think people had a sense at that point of we have achieved the the pinnacle of what the movement is about, and and um, and and one hand I think really enjoyed being in that moment of feeling, feeling success and feeling um, positive about how, what, about what kinds of social transformations have happened. Um, But then of course we had another historic cycle where we elected Donald Trump as president. And all of a sudden people said, Oh wait, lesbian stories and lesbian storytelling is going to be important again, right? Like we are in, we are having a a regressive moment in relationship to lesbian feminism. And so Sinister Wisdom, which was 
the same. To me, sinister wisdom in 2015 is the very same sinister wisdom of 2017. We were publishing four issues a year and kind of doing our work, but what it meant out there in the world changed dramatically. Um, And then, of course, the pandemic happened. And whereas I was rolling along, publishing four issues a year of the journal and organizing an event here and there, if I was traveling or if local people wanted to do something to celebrate an issue. And now all of a sudden, everyone was sitting at home. And in early April of that year, I was talking with a bunch of um, nonprofit colleagues and realized that some organizations are going to survive this pandemic moment, some are not, and some are going to thrive. And I decided that Sinister Wisdom needed to thrive. And, you know, we started doing Zoom events and we started doing a wide variety just experimenting with a wide variety of programs of what we could do online, what we could do with Zoom. Um, And over the past year, again, have seen a growth in subscriptions, a growth in the number of people who are interested. I now get emails every day of people saying, I'm so glad you're doing this. This is so relevant. Um, This work is really vital to what's happening in the world right now. Um, And so kind of leaning into what's happening now and being around for the cyclical change where the voice was needed um, has really yielded value. And it's, you know, it's been incredible to see. This is a good segue, actually, because one of the ones I really remember was the event you sponsored for Minnie Bruce Pratt's uh, most recent collection of poetry. And I just want to pause and say how much I love her. I know you do, too, and how she's someone who is been through all of these transformations with us in a way you know she was part of those earliest women print movements founding collective feminary her first publications of of poetry were from these small independent presses um she was so central to thinking about radical organizing uh, and and trans inclusion with her partnership with leslie feinberg um but she also came and read from this beautiful heartbreaking collection so I just wanted to mention her since she's coming again to the University of Mississippi to give the keynote um, at our Eisen Student Gender Conference, and we could not be more thrilled to have her come back. Could you talk a little bit about her importance in this larger trajectory and that evening in that book of poetry? So Minnie Bruce Pratt, you did a great outline of of um, her of her life and what her career has been, and I think her career as a poet, um, and I use that with a little... Um, a little irony, right? Poets, I think, less have careers and more um, write a lot and put a lot out there and then do lots of other work around the side to kind of keep them, keep body and soul together to keep writing the poems. Um, and I think that accurately describes Minnie Bruce in lots of ways. Um, her, her work has really been nurtured by lesbian feminist publishing. Um, when her book Crime Against Nature won the Lamont Poetry Prize, it was um, a collection from Firebrand Press, one of the independent presses that um, I write about. And um, and now, you know, and, and then she wrote the gorgeous book about uh, her relationship with Leslie Feinberg that is now out of print as she slash he um, and I, that's one of those books that I read as a young reader and just 
read and reread and reread and said, I want to write things like this. I want to be a part of books like this getting into the world. Um, and now we come to Magnified, right? Which is her, um, her poems. I was, I was rereading it this morning. The poems have really, on one hand, loss and grief in the process when Leslie Feinberg, her partner of many years, was dying, but also these poems that just so profoundly celebrate um, queer love and partnership um, and, and the interfaces of queer love and partnership with the world, right? Both the natural world and the world, and the human world, the world of work. I mean, one of the things that I think Minnie Bruce always does is remind us where people are doing work in the world around us as we're interacting with, with the world, whether it's going to a coffee shop in the morning or seeing people making deliveries on the street. Like the working men and women are always a vital part of what um, what Minnie Bruce Pratt is showing. I mean, Magnified, an incredible collection and issued by, to kind of return to the politics of publishing, um, published by Wesleyan University Press, um, which, I, which is really thrilling to see a university press take up Minnie Bruce's work. Um, and uh, because of the, the ways that lesbians um, have been left out of institutions previously, um, where now there's institutional space for gay and lesbian work to be published, to be taken seriously, to be part of these kind of dialogues so that queer people can be a part of the American body politic in broader ways and not just in their niche communities. Yes, I remember her telling me when she came out, I think it was the late 70s, that she knew she would never have a tenure track job. She knew she would never have a conventional academic career and she was right i mean she had a she had long-term full-time uh, employment but she did not have the same kind of pay scale and promotions that you get um, and when i think about that think about the fact that i teach her all the time right but she is not the one who's gotten the benefit of that it's it's people like me right who have had the benefits of what she did to allow for out professors to be able to be employed it's really quite something and i'm i'm so grateful for the work she has done and continues to do. She's to me like a, a queer saint. I mean, she's just like someone who lives purely to help others and to, to think about that. I just, I, I adore her. I just have to add her generosity, right? Like, I think that there is a way and that there's a, you know, like Minnie Bruce is part of a broader cohort and there's a broad group of women who, received PhDs during the 1970s and the early 1980s, who did extraordinary work. Um, and she, she is someone who came through it and continues to be incredibly generous, um, even recognizing that there are ways that there are, there are ways that she didn't have advantages that, that might have made life different or better. Um, and does not hold bitterness, but just continues to hold generosity and to lift up other people and to be interested in what new generations are doing in the world. It's, she's such a model in so many ways. 
she is. And it's, it's the best part of that tradition that I'm so, so proud to be a part of, you know, I remember her saying to me, well, of course, capitalism's not going to reward her. Like she's like, has no illusions about the system being in any way equitable or fair. And that this is, it's not about, you know, whether you deserve it. Right. And I, I, I always appreciate that with her. Um, I want to give you a chance before we wrap up to talk a little bit about your own uh, poetry and writing as someone who's kind of an ongoing um, creator in this tradition, as well as someone who studies it. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your own poetry and what you're working on and give us a little bit of that background. Well, my last book was was called Avowed, and it was really um, written and responding. It was published in 2016, responding to this moment, to the moment of um, marriage equality, and um, and thinking about that sort of in relationship to my my own life of working at a gay and lesbian community center, and then being in this long term partnered relationship that where the ground shifts underneath us and we are married. Um, and since the pandemic, I've been, you know, I'm, I'm always, I'm always writing poems. Um, and I've always been, I'm right, right now I'm working on a couple interesting series of poems that I'm, um, I think one is a full length book project. Um, it's about the Lamed Vavniks, which are the 36 righteous ones in Judaism, where the world relies on their um, kindness and their good deeds to keep operating. Um, so I've been really imagining, um, I've been writing about the Lamed Vavniks as uh, all women, um, all some Jewish, some not Jewish, and all women who are the, the righteous ones that are like mini Bruce Pratt, right? Not um, at an apex of power in any way, but women who are really doing important work in the world that's not always valued. And then I've also been um, working on a series of um, um, the Yiddish word is tachinas, which are these like little women's prayers, right? And so they're prayers that don't need to be said in a minion. They're prayers that women might that women say. Um, in women's realms, sort of in historical um, Jewish worlds, um, and so I've been writing all of these little these these little poems that bless little things of daily life, um, and thinking and and in both of these, I think kind of thinking about a broader cosmology and thinking about how do we um, how do we access meaning and create meaning, especially at times when really at times that really challenge us and challenge our sort of sense of humanity and our connection with one another. So those are the, those are the things that I'm thinking about in my own work right now. I am so looking forward to hearing some of these. I haven't heard you read since I think you read at Valley Valley Bookstore when you're here pre-pandemic, which was delightful. Yeah. Um, I'm so delighted to get to talk to you today. Julie Enzer is now officially on the Eisman Center team, I can say proudly, and is teaching uh, online. So I encourage y'all to take her classes, spread the word. We're, we're excited about the future and the kinds of things we can offer, internships, sinister wisdom, and other kinds of work. So um, please be in touch. And Julie will be here at the Eisenstein Gender Conference in person, pandemic willing. Um, and hopefully we can all sit and chat and maybe dish a little bit in person. Yes. So thanks again. Uh, greetings to the beloved uh, Julie's partner who 
Yes. She prefers her as the beloved, which I feel is the best way to refer to one's partner. So I'd like it. Um, and, and thanks so much. And, and thanks everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time on Swerve South. Thank you.